I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is She Said, She Said. Betsy Fisher-Martin is an Emmy-winning television executive and producer. Currently, she is the executive director of the Women in Politics Institute at American University. The first 23 years of Betsy's career were spent at NBC, including as executive producer for top-rated Sunday public affairs show, Meet the Press. Betsy also co-created and co-hosted Bloomberg Politics Masters in Politics podcast, and she founded her own consulting business where she helps corporate executives to increase their comfort in interactions with the media. We'll talk to Betsy about what she learned from her longtime friend and mentor, Tim Russert. Tim, as many of you may recall, was a legend in television journalism and in Washington as the former host of Meet the Press. We'll also talk to Betsy about career transition. She made an interesting one when she left NBC. All of that and much, much more. Betsy, welcome to She Said, She Said. I am so glad to be with you. Well, I'm so happy (laughs) to have you. We have lots to discuss, but let's start with talking about your current full-time gig, Mm -hmm. even though I know you've got some side hustles and we'll talk about those, but you are the executive director of the Women in Politics Institute at AU. Talk about what that is and how you're evolving this because it's something that's been around for a while. Absolutely. It's a terrific institute at American University and their School of Public Affairs. And what we focus on really is the academic training and the practical training that we give to young women um, so that we can eventually, our hope is, to close that gender gap in politics. So we feel like between training and academic insights that we can give our students, we can help further that along. And so really that is um, that is what we try to do, and we try to highlight um, the opportunities and the challenges that women faced in the political arena. Yeah, so you have adjunct professors. We have, I yes, yes, we, you are, we are very thankful to have you on our team <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, and so we have adjunct professors, we have full-time professors, um, we do a lot of research. We have a, one of my favorite components of the Institute is that we actually run a leadership training program called We Lead, which is for young women ages 22 to 30 who want to run for office themselves one day. And they're postgraduates. They're all working full-time on the Hill or in advocacy organizations, um, nonprofits. And they spend, a cohort of 35 of them, spend a full academic year with us uh, one full Saturday a month. We have those sessions and we sort of do soup to nuts campaign training with them. We'll spend an entire session on fundraising or a session on communications or elements of a campaign. And they hear from experts, practitioners, in the field that can help them think about how they can best position themselves. And we also have a professional development consultant that comes in and works with them also in terms of how to shape their biography, how to be better at networking, you know, some of those practical professional skills that you need even if you aren't running for office. So I think it's, it's beneficial as well. So that's one of my uh, favorite programs. And uh, we have that cohort of 35 very, very impressive young women. 
Are you able to track the young women that are going through the program, and do you have a sense of what's happening to them? Yeah, we actually have a very robust alum group, if you will, within the program, and we tap into those alums a lot to come back years later and actually help uh, be on panels and facilitate discussions. And uh, in fact, uh, Lauren Underwood, who just won in Illinois, youngest female African-American young woman to be in Congress, is one of our alums. We're super proud of that. She graduated from the program in 2012 and is now a member of Congress. So we're excited this year she's going to come back for our little graduation that we do and be our keynote speaker. And I know that uh, young women will be thrilled to hear from her. Yeah, Yeah. that's fantastic. So your role at AU represented a pretty significant career shift for you. You spent 20 plus years at NBC. Yeah. Talk a bit about making that transition like why why this what was yeah. it about this particular role that was appealing to it you it sounds different in a certain respect you know going from um, political journalism into teaching but in a lot of respects um, it is similar because I view what I'm doing at the Institute and then the, the courses that I teach at American University very similar in the sense of when I was with NBC and running Meet the Press for all those years with Tim Russert we really thought of our mission if you will is to educate the public and to educate our viewers um, about politics and so in that sense it's very similar because I feel like I'm doing the same thing just um, not broadcasting to six million people <laughs> Right. You know, every week, um, but really on a, on a, you know a one on one basis and and with um, students in the classroom. So I think that there's um, some overlap in in kind of thinking about that mission. Yeah, was it hard to make the shift? I mean, spending spending even ten years in yes. an organization <laughs> pivoting to something else can be really daunting. What was your what was your thought process? When did you know yeah. it was time to leave? Well, it's interesting because um, I sort of grew up at Meet the Press. I did my undergrad at American University. One of the wonderful things about American University in Washington, D.C. is that the students there are very politically engaged, doing a number of different internships. And so um, I had done an internship on the Hill. I had done an internship at a law firm. And I was planning to go to law school. And um, I came across in the Career Center binder. There was no no fancy app at this point. Right. Literally <laughs> flipping through a binder of a potential internship, literally down the street on Nebraska Avenue at NBC News at Meet the Press. And I thought, I think I've heard of that show, and that could be sort of interesting. Yeah, it's politics. <laughs> I can walk there. I don't have to take that darn shuttle to the metro. I can sleep a little <laughs> bit later. I mean, what else does a college student need for incentive there? And so um, I applied and was hired as the intern and literally started on that same semester as that Tim Russert took over the show as the moderator. Wow. It was Garrick Utley at the, um, and then Tim took over in that December as the moderator. And I was fortunate enough to be able to stay and um, for the next semester as well. And this was during the 91-92 campaign cycle. I'm dating myself here. Um, and just being involved in that, covering that campaign was fascinating to me. I had grown up in New Orleans and you know politics is sport down there in Louisiana and so now I was in the center of it here and um, I just got bitten by the journalism bug and it was very similar I found to what I was trying to think about doing with my life going to law school in terms of 
really looking at the debate of something, figuring out why you think this or and or that. And I realized I, while I love politics, I didn't find myself to be a very political person. I love the study of it. Mm-hmm. I love the debate of it. Uh, I love the you know kind of getting behind, you know, talking to voters, understanding issues thinking about things from the other side. And so that actually fit perfectly um, with this career in political journalism. Tim Russert, who had gone to law school, said to me uh, after my internship, oh, you don't need to go to law school. <laughs> Forget about that. You know, stay and um, help us, um, you know, cover the uh, cover the campaign. And at that point, the political unit and Meet the Press were one and the same. And so um, I s- deferred my admission to law school. I was supposed to go to Tulane mm-hmm. back home in New Orleans, where I'm from, and um, wrote them a n- very nice letter, said I would, you know, been given the opportunity to cover this campaign, and would they please defer my admission? And they said, of course, and they kept my $700, which they still have. <laughs> I <laughs> tease them about that. Every time I talk to them, I say, you guys still have my 700 bucks. <laughs> anyway, and so I never went to law school, but uh, I did stay and, you know, got to go to the convention that summer in New York, and that was thrilling and really just got bitten by the journalism bug. And Tim Russert was so much a part of that because he just exuded that enthusiasm about politics. Um, And it was a great experience. And so I went back uh, again to AU and got my master's part-time on the weekend. They had a weekend program because I had not taken one single journalism course at school at all, which is not in my master plan. And um, I was able to there kind of really learn some practical components of journalism, editing tape and, you know, things along that nature. And so at the time at NBC, it was sort of a sink or swim environment. (laughs) And so I was able to kind of get those skills and uh, move up through the ranks and do some uh, unique things. And at that point, what I always tell people about uh, job security is my job at Meet the Press at the time was the researcher. And this was pre-Google. Again, to date myself, (laughs) I was the Google. And so (laughs) that was a very good thing to be because you are well needed and, you know, you're a resource. And so a show like Meet the Press that was so built around research and finding facts and information when you're the keeper of those files right you have some pretty good job security <laughs> and so I was able to uh to stay there and, and then and and move up the ranks and then became the executive producer about 10 years later um and then stayed for another 11 years so yeah a total of 22 23 years which means 23 years with no weekends too by the way <laughs> Because your, your production uh, schedule, yeah, you were- it's it's pretty much twenty four seven. I mean, it you know you would theoretically have a Monday or Tuesday off, but you know, in the world of you know news changing and having to be on top of things, that was very rare to just completely unplug. So it was a lot. And, you know, I felt like by the time I left, I had sort of done everything that I wanted to do. And the the news world was very different. What I really enjoyed about Meet the Press was, again, going back to the research component of it, I loved having a good three or four days to dive into a potential guest or a topic. And this is what, you know, Tim and I would do, you know, for several days in a row is doing this research, figuring out the graphics, the tape that we put into the show, and being able to, um, you know, have a 25 or 30 minute, you know, segment and really go deep into something. And that's what I really enjoyed about it. And, you know, I think now, uh, if you look at, you know, the Sunday shows and lots of different shows, right, it's, um, it's very difficult in this 24-7 
news environment where news just, you know, is lightning speed to be able to figure out a show, the show that you want to do on Sunday, it's very difficult on a Tuesday to start planning for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in, you know, in my stone age, we would, you know, literally book the show on like a Tuesday or Wednesday and feel fairly confident that the show that we were going to put on on Sunday would still be extremely relevant and that we would be taking a story and moving it forward. Um, and these days, it's very difficult, I think, the way things change uh, at lightning speed, very difficult for shows to do that. I mean, you know, they're probably not making final decisions on the top guests in the show until like a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that does not give you three or four days to do the research that you need to do to have a, you know, 25 minute conversation. Does the public suffer from that? You know, the early days of what we did on Meet the Press, it was less partisan in the sense that we would routinely, for example, have, you know, the majority leader and minority leader of the Senate, you know, Dolan Mitchell coming right. on Meet the Press, almost to the fact that it was like, I'll almost too much, but almost every other month they would, it seems, come on Meet the Press together and talk about issues, talk about legislation, not a debate, but a civilized discussion. And I think that that was very important for people to see and for people to learn about issues in a constructive way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Lott and Daschle certainly came on Meet the Press many, many times. I mean, you know, I first met you back in in those days (laughs) when you were working for Senator Shelby. And we would routinely have a D and an R come on the show together. And you, first of all, you haven't seen the Senate Majority Leader and Minority Leader co-own a show together in probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. And it's too bad because I think the public can definitely learn from that. Um, and, and when you do see an R&D on together, it's, it's more of a battle. It's more of a debate right. and things get, you know, screaming over each other back and forth. And I don't think that's very productive. Yeah. So as you, because you teach journalism mm-hmm. to students at AU, how do you think about the, I mean, there's been such an evolution, certainly in the ways that you've just talked about, but, but also particularly as it relates to social media and the competition that exists for mainstream media that wasn't there before, where yeah. they really are competing for eyeballs, for advertising, for all of these sort of historic metrics, right? How has that changed? And how are your students sort of reacting to that change? You know, it's interesting. This this semester, I'm teaching a course in the um, School of Public Affairs on politics in the television age. And so we're looking at, you know, how television, the power of television, how it's influenced politics over the years. And so starting with Nixon. Yeah, Day, starting with that, debate. absolutely. Or even, yeah, starting with that and then moving forward. And of course, the you know toward the end of the semester, we're going to definitely get into more of how the internet has kind of revolutionized mm-hmm. politics. But you know, even for example, last week I had um, Steve McMahon, Democratic uh, media consultant, come on talk about TV advertising, and you know that was one of the things certainly that we talked about was how advertising campaigns now it's much more digital, and how does that influence things? But the resources that even just the internet, never mind social media, provide now, there's so much information. You know, I remember back in the day, again, pre-Google and whatnot, you would, you'd be trying to find information. I would spend my week as a researcher, you know, finding information that was going on. On Sunday mornings, I would come in and, you know, if we were having, you know, the senator on um, from Illinois, I would be calling the Chicago affiliate and saying, hey, what's in the Chicago Tribune this morning? Anything about the senator? If so, please fax. You know, but it was more direct contact. It, it was more direct then. contact, but it was also finding information. Now it was so much information that really journalism is is much more about distilling that information for the public and trying to pick out 
what do you need to know what's the most important as opposed to more gathering that I felt like we had to do because there's just so much out there mm-hmm. which is great right. but you know I think that uh, certainly you know, social media has just has changed the pace um, so much of news and you know I think anybody can realize you know what we're talking about today, two days from now, will be something probably totally different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas the, a, a story really kind of stuck around uh, in the past much. There's just so much now for people to grab onto, yeah. you know. It's fair to say that Tim Russert was a mentor to you. Mm. You worked with him for many, many years. And you wrote a fabulous piece with one of your former NBC colleagues yeah. about some of the things that you learned about him and how it transformed the way that you think about your work and your life. Talk a little bit about that because yeah. I think it's it's a fabulous piece. We'll post it in the show notes. Oh, thank you, thank that. you. So my colleague uh, Aaron Fogarty Owen and I had, you know, I smile when I think about it because we had so many fun years together with Tim um, working kind of in the trenches. But I had 17 years working with Tim. You know, just from that very first beginning of that internship um so it was he was just at a larger than life figure and and that enthusiasm that I mentioned earlier about politics was so contagious you know he was like a kid in a candy store you know had the you know if there was a new poll out that morning you know it was like so exciting but he really taught us a lot in terms of you know the values of journalism um the ethics involved in it the key to proper preparing for things I mean, he just, you know, never would go on the set and wing any kind of thing. You know, everything was really thought out and planned. And he had that legal background. And so, you know, we would really plot those questions back and forth, almost like a cross-examination. And and so he taught us the importance of that and thinking creatively about things. And then, you know, on a personal level, um, he was someone, you know, the family to him was very important and his young son at the time, Luke. And so, you know, Aaron and I both were, you know, young women, pre-kids during some of that time. And we just, we had a great role model in him in terms of like how to set your priorities in life and what's really important. And and to him, that was, you know, that was his son. And so I think as Aaron and I are both now parents, and, you know, Tim was after me for many years. When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? <laughs> and so um, I had my... I did, yes, yes, I did. In 2001, I had my daughter, and he always called her Baby E because I didn't know if she was going to be a boy or a girl, and I had E names for each, and so he always <laughs> referred to her as Baby E, even after she was born. <laughs> but, you know, he was so excited, and I, I never will forget, you know, a, a message that he sent to me. You know, this was our top screen message as the equivalent of even, e- email now and he said you know this is the most important job you'll ever have and that was just so true and he said nothing else matters and um, I was very blessed in in that environment and yeah and then my daughter was born Um, actually she was born September 16th 2001 so the week after 9-11 oh, wow. and so I was in the hospital before she was born on bed rest and Tim would come in routinely you know every day and bring some sort of pizza or, you know, hamburgers or some sort of horrible food to supplement the equally horrible food in the uh, in the hospital. And, you know, all the nurses would be swooning, oh, Tim Russert's here. I got extra special treatment, which was <laughs> terrific. And then, you know, 9-11 happened. And I remember being, you know, in the hospital um, with my dial-up laptop, you know, on my belly and, you know, working on working and figure out what we we're going to do on the show. And we ended up having uh, Dick Cheney yeah. that Sunday. And it has historic interview that we did from Camp David, which of course I was not 
not there, but my colleague Aaron held down the fort. We had that really momentous first live interview ever from from Camp David that mm-hmm. that Sunday. I remember yeah. you you talk about I think in the piece having to make a call on the fly because you couldn't disclose where, where? the interview Yes, was and this was part of, you know, was in an undisclosed Right. Location. This was part of the creativity and so um, you know, Mary Madeline at the time who was working for the vice president said, you know, Jim, you can't say you're at Camp David and and you know, security's worried about that and he said, "Well, how about we say we're in the shadows of Camp David?" She's like, "I think that'll work." <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that, that's what we did. It worked. So Tim was also famous for as you've just talked yeah. about about having a very personal approach to the people that he worked mm-hmm. with, but also the people that he interviewed and people oh, yeah. that he would come in contact with, and that he was famous for the little notes that he would send yeah, to Yeah, just people. little, you know, two-sentence notes on a you know piece of notepaper. There was no fancy, personalized, you know, crane stationery for him. And he just, you know, he would send these all over. Anytime a guest was on, you know, we would take a, a photograph of the guest and when the photos came back uh, printed you know he would send a little handwritten note to the to the people a key to his success was these relationships that he was able to form with people in terms of sources as well and he you know felt just as comfortable talking you know to a capitol police officer about as a source and getting information as he did talking to you know the senate majority leader and it was sort of equal treatment for both and he was kind of that every day you know this was from his roots um growing up in in buffalo and in a working class family and you know he always talked as well about he would find his dad after the show big russ be his chiefest most accurate focus group he would literally call him after each show and get his dad's thoughts on how the show was and you know whether the you know the senator was lying or you know was he not coming across truthful or you know was tim too tough or you know whatever it was and and he really appreciated and valued sort of that everyday um, feedback that he would get from people, not sort of the you know the elite Washington crowd. And I, I think he was able to ask questions on the show that sort of the everyday person wanted to find an answer to. And I, I think he was able to ask those questions that wouldn't go above people's heads. You know, he would explain something. He didn't talk in Washington acronyms all the time, even though he was schooled in politics and had spent so many years as an operative uh, in politics, working for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, in the Senate, and also working for uh, Governor Mario Cuomo in New York, and so he he had these sources everywhere. And you know, he came into NBC at the time, and there's been a lot of discussion recently about people in that revolving door. And so some people say, well, Tim Russert did it. You know, he came in to be sort of the right-hand man, if you will, to the then president of NBC News. Um, sort of an advisor, fixer type. And this was back in, you know, the late 80s. And he, for example, you know, wired this interview that, uh, this famous interview that the Today Show got with the Pope. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that had Tim's fingerprints on it. And he had somehow wired wired that. And then he did that for a couple years and was just an advisor on how to cover things and, you know, I guess relationship building. And then um, the Washington Bureau job came open um, and he was sent down to be the manager, so the Washington Bureau chief in Washington. 
and did that for a couple years and part of that job every morning we had a call at NBC of all the you know bureau chiefs and executive producers of all the shows and it's kind of a download on what's going on that day sort of like your front page meeting at a newspaper and sort of the main editorial meeting and Tim's responsibility as Washington bureau chief was to give kind of the Washington debrief on what's happening in politics and he would do such a good job at that and put his finger exactly on you know the key components of something that the in New York, the bosses were like, yeah, I think we need to put this on TV, actually. <laughs> this is yeah. sounding pretty good, right? And so he started doing, the Today Show at the time had a, a political panel, and he would go on and, and sort of be early day analysis pundit type um, on this political panel. And that's how he started even going on television. And then from there, he would be, meet the press format at the time was we would have a panel of journalists questioning the guest, hence the name Meet the Press. And so it was a panel of rotating journalists that would question the guest. And so Tim very often then became one of the rotating questioners Mm -hmm. um, when Garrett Gutley was the moderator. And then Garrett Gutley moved back to New York to do the Sunday Today show, um, which at the time was filmed in Washington. Anyway, they moved that back to New York and then and then they had Tim take over uh, as the moderator. But it was very much an accidental career for him um, because he always said he had a face for radio. But he had sort of that everyday look about him. Very you know, he's sitting there in his Land's End suits. <laughs> he didn't want hairspray a mile from him. I mean, just the opposite of that sort of central casting anchorman look yeah. you have, right? Yeah. That was not him. And people liked him. As people liked him and he was connectable. And he had, like I said, that enthusiasm that just gravitated people, you know, pulled people people in. Yeah. So as you think about this incredible experience that you had for much of your career, and you think about all of this great advice and interesting ways of working and relating to people, which piece or two do you sort of find yourself gravitating to as you think about the impact that he had on your career? You know, that's a good question. There's so much of it that I find is so relevant. I mean, you know, hardly a week goes by where I don't think of some aspect um, of, you know, things that we kind of learned around. uh, around. But I think at Tim's core, you know, he was – very focused on uh, kind of doing the right thing and presenting things in a fair way. And I just think he had sort of that uh, internal compass when it came to his job in terms of making sure issues were presented on both sides. And, you know, part of what I do at the Institute that I also, you know, think is important, and you and I have talked about this, is I want to be a, a place that, you know, we are nonpartisan mm-hmm. and that we kind of examine issues from both sides, have experts on both sides. And so, you know, while Tim did come from democratic politics, and this is ironic in this day and age when I feel like so many people on TV, you know, it's very obvious where they come from a opinion standpoint, but he just went out of his way on so, so every week to really have both sides of an issue. And I never, in all those 17 years of working with him, never had a conversation, a politically bent conversation with him where he vocalized his political opinion on something. Really? Yeah. Never would he get off the show and, you know, rail on. Now, he would get off the show and say, oh, that person's lying or, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't believe he said that. But never from like never arguing a a side on a particular issue. Um, And he just found that to be. And I think that that's one of the terrific things about a program like Meet the Press. And it still is to this day, you know, a place where both sides are treated fairly. Um, And he would talk about sort of doing tough but fair questioning and. 
And he always told the story about going to see Lawrence Spivak, who was one of the co-creators of the program, which, by the way, was created in 1947, the longest-running television program in the world. Wow. Before Lawrence Spivak passed away, Tim went to go see him after he took over as moderator and asked him what kind of the secret of success was. And he said, learn as much about your guest and take the other side and you know, do that consistently week in and week out. And that's the secret ingredient. And so he really kind of saw himself as somebody who – you know, really did need to be uh, nonpartisan and and um, sort of have that equal opportunity questioning for folks. You had a really, you know, this is it's a horrible thing to happen. He passed away tragically. Mm-hmm. He died of a heart attack mm-hmm. and had been editing video, as I recall. For tracking video. Tracking video. Mm-hmm. Tracking uh, a, uh, is, a, um, an opening to the show. You guys were getting ready to, to, to put the show together. Yeah, right? it was a Friday. It was a Friday. And so this was just before yeah. Sunday. And this is somebody who you've worked for for many, many years, mm-hmm. who you're very close to, mm-hmm. who's a mentor, mm-hmm. who it's, I mean, it's horrible anytime that mm-hmm. happens, but when you're particularly close to someone and when it's in the work context, yeah. how did you deal with it? As anything, right? You kind of get through it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was particularly difficult because as you mentioned, you know, you're in a work environment with somebody and they're such a part of your, your life um, because so much of your life revolves around your profession, especially I feel like here in Washington, right? But, and so he was sort of definitely a mentor, you know, because I had started working with him at such a young age, uh, you know, in those early days, uh, very much of, you know, a father figure and then more like a, you know, more like a brother as we sort of, um, as I sort of grew up. And so losing that was very, very difficult. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, it just never is the same right. after that. Yeah. It just never is. But you have to be thankful for of the time that I did have mm-hmm. um, with him that I'm just, I'm, you know, grateful every day for it. And then, you know, trying to pick up those pieces and, and move along and, you know, part of, we tried to do with the show in the, sort of that immediate aftermath because, again, he passed away on a Friday and then it's like, oh, what are we going to do on a Sunday? And then your mind, is, you know, if you're running a TV show, has to go to, oh, i got to put a show on the air. And so we did, we did a big tribute show to him. We put that together. You know, we had a ton of video. We had a panel, Mary Madeline, Doris Kearns Goodwin, all the folks that knew him best. And I was actually on the panel also. And so then I was trying to be on the panel and produce the show <laughs> at the same time the and then deal with yeah. everything that was going on. But, you know, I, I look back on that and think, well, maybe that's how I got through it, right? Because I just stayed busy, stayed busy and tried to focus on putting on the best kind of tribute that we could to him. But, you know, it definitely wasn't easy. Tom Brokaw, um, thankfully, stepped in and, you know, was the interim moderator for a, a good six months or so, which which I think was great. You know, like I said, definitely thankful for every minute of those 17 years. And just it was, you know, so un, unforeseen and such a tragic tragic thing and I yeah. just think he is he's just one of those irreplaceable people in in the in the larger world of journalism that I don't think um, we'll see again yeah such a huge impact yeah such a huge impact you know it's interesting um, most of my mentors mm-hmm. as I was making my mm-hmm. way uh, up the you know, up the chain, chain yeah. were men. Yeah. Um, you know, yours were primarily men. I'm sure you had some women yeah. mentors. But but as we think about this next generation of young women who hopefully are listening to this mm-hmm. podcast and thinking about mentorship, what's your advice for work, you know, for seeking out male mentors as mm-hmm. well as female mentors? Because I think 
there can be a lot of confusion yeah, yeah, <laughs> around so I, whether that's important and necessary and sort of what role they play. So what's your perspective on that? I feel like mostly they choose you and you not you don't necessarily choose them in, in some respect. But, yeah. um, you know, I was lucky because, you know, Meet the Press had had a, actually a long history of having females running the show. And the woman uh, who was the longtime producer with the show, Betty Dukert, um, was there when I first started and retired several years later. But she had actually been with the program for, at, by the time she retired, 40 years. Oh, wow. She started wow. literally as the secretary. So you were just getting started. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I had nothing on that. <laughs> um, literally started as the secretary to Lawrence Bivak and worked her way up and um, she had a real sense, and I learned a lot from her because she was somebody that was always, never got rattled. You could never see her sweat. Always very graceful and appreciative to people and had really solid relationships around town. Never double-crossed anybody. Was not a revengeful person and just and just a really good person and, you know, existed in kind of the rough-and-tumble world. Um, and back then, you know, of course, of being a woman even, um, and excelled and did so well and was such a driving force of the show. And so um, in her, I, you know, I had all of those qualities and then, and then I had all the, the qualities I mentioned earlier in Tim. So I really had the, the best of both worlds to model after. Um, and, and, you know, in an industry that, you know, did not have a lot of women leaders uh, at the top. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was lucky to, to have her uh, and to have, of course, of course, Tim. But I feel like with mentoring in general, you know, it's it's the two-way street in a lot of respects too, right? There's, a, you know, a couple of young women that I've just, you know, through uh, AU over the years, been teaching and developed, you know, a relationship with them. And, you know, it's a two-way street. You know, I try to help them with things, but then they, you know, call and see how I'm doing, or they'll come and speak to my class. Or, and, um, you know, it's something that I think to be an effective mentee, um, you have to approach it in a way where it's a two-way street. Absolutely. You know? I totally agree. And I think that sometimes is, that's missed. Yeah. Because... The person feels like, I'm so junior, how can I possibly offer something of value to right. this person who's very accomplished? But you can. Oh, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> Happy and, birthday. And, <laughs> and their perspective. Yeah, right? their, their insights. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so interesting. So you also have a consulting business, mm-hmm. which is sort of a bit of a side hustle for you. Yeah, I don't do a ton of it anymore, but... Um, in the interim, before I was at AU full-time-ish here now, that um, I did start a, a media consulting business where primarily I work on training corporate executives' uh, media training. Uh-huh. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And it was, again, you know, an accidental kind of thing. People kept asking me to do it just because of my experience. And once I did it for a couple of folks, I said, I really like this. And I don't do political because I feel like that's too close too close to right. where I was. Um, and my husband is also a political reporter, so I don't want to have any sort of conflicts with that way. But I, I'm fascinated by the business culture, and I'm fascinated to kind of go into a company and be able to look under the hood with them and figure out, you know, how the CEO or the executive team is presenting itself and ways to do that better. Do you see a common challenge as it relates to those opportunities that you've had to sort of go in and look under the hood? Do you see commonalities or or advice that you could consistently give that oftentimes is lacking? I think 
think that authenticity factor is something that's so important um, that, you know, again, you know, going back to Tim and what he was able to do on Meet the Press, being authentic, I think is sometimes in CEO land, and you can appreciate this, there's too much of that kind of, you know, corporate talk all the time and and the jargon and, and people zone out and people right. don't understand and listen. And so if a person can be connectable to investors, connectable to clients, connectable to customers, connectable to other employees, I just think that is that is a much more effective way to communicate um, and to kind of get off of some of these, you know, stage talking points that people rely on too much. Well, I think you need to have a message and you need to have pre-thought about that. Uh, I think you need to be able to kind of enhance messaging with talking about examples, illustrations, and so to make mm-hmm. to make um, your point really resonate with folks. And what I found with the clients that I work with, they're all very receptive. I mean, there's a reason that they're hiring someone like me, and they want to do better, and they want to learn. And again, it goes to teaching and learning, and then I just feel like that's kind of a theme of what I've been doing in my life, because I love to learn, and I love to teach. And so if I can learn about a company, and then kind of distill that in a way that will here's what here's what resonates with me and here's how you maybe you can push that message out um you know that i i think it's been very fun yeah yeah i'm interested in your perspective both from where you used to sit Mm -hmm. and now where you sit today in thinking about political coverage of women in politics and we've all heard you know the obsession over clothes and hair and and all of that business Yeah, yeah yeah but what's your perspective i mean is there really a huge difference. Um, does it? Does that difference in focusing on appearance really matter that much? What What do you think? I, you know, I think you can point to lots of different examples, and I think we have gotten better as a culture in kind of calling some of this out when we see it. But I do think, like going to the likability issue, you know, there certainly have been men that have been seen as unlikable or unrelatable, i.e., Mitt Romney, in that mm-hmm. sense of not being able to relate to people, um, and that gets called. I and mean, people made fun of his ironed, you know, jeans being creased. Right. There is some of that that's kind of par for the course. But that's unusual for men. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, women. You know, I definitely think things have gotten better. And I think it's the sort of thing, if you see something, say something that's important. Mm -hmm. And women and kind of media watchers in general have gotten better about, you know, really kind of trying to be the umpire on some of the things like, hey, this is going a little bit too far. But, you know, the likability issue that's going on, for example, with Amy Klobuchar, you know, is that, are we over-reporting on that? Is that too sexist? You know, I think with her... And that has been certainly something that has followed her around for a while. Right. And it would it would be almost strange if that wasn't discussed in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does the fact that people are saying that, are they are they treating her, are employees looking at her in a different way because she's a woman, like i.e. actions that she did, do they perceive those more harshly or more inappropriately than they would as a male? That's not a media question. That's how she there she's being perceived by people that work for her. It's hard to imagine that there would be a huge difference between 
genders as it relates to that question of throwing notebooks and telephones and belittling people or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, yeah, yeah. these are allegations. I yeah. went there. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this is what's been reported. And it's hard for me to imagine if I had a male boss who threw a notebook at my head. Right, right. <laughs> that you wouldn't maybe raise your hand and I'm say, right, and he's yeah. running for president and hey. say, hey, maybe we have a little temper problem yeah. here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in that particular case, I, I don't, I see it more, I see it more legitimate in terms of this is, you know, an issue that, you know, should be talked about. Right. This notion of nice yeah. is something that really your mentor, Tim Russert, yeah. really embodied this notion of nice. Nice can be perceived as weak. And it can also t- also sometimes, I think, be perceived as cutting both ways as it relates to women. If you're too nice, then you might be perceived as not being competent or, or competent. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your perspective on this notion of nice? Well, I, I think definitely it's something that women um, have to grapple with. I mean, I remember there's a famous quote from Jane Swift, who was the acting governor in Massachusetts. And, you know, her point was that if people think that I'm too nice, they don't think I'm competent enough. If they don't think I'm tough enough and competent enough, they, you know, they think I'm a B-I-T-C-H, right? And so, um, you know, it's uh, women, political leaders, it's certainly something that is out there. And I feel like the more, and again, this goes back to the mission of, you know, trying to close that gender gap, the more women we can have in political office and the more that we can see and model and, you know, all the research suggests that, you know, it's one of the most important quality, one of the most important qualities in getting more women to run is having that modeling, having being able to see women in office. And so I think as more women are run and hold political leadership, um, my hope is that kind of that battle between nice and competent declines. And I, I think it has over the last couple of years. Betsy, we ask each of our guests on the podcast to leave us with Uh a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra, something that could be sort of a guiding light for you. One of those things, maybe something that you share with your students with some regularity. What would be yours? Hmm. What I do tell, uh, you know, students ask me a lot, you know, how do I differentiate myself Um, in the workplace and how do I kind of move up and you know I think sometimes you know you see this notion of young uh young folks always kind of being on a hurry in a hurry right to move up move up move up you know what do I do right 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 right. (laughs) but I always say the most important thing you know in that workplace to do is really try to anticipate um, what your supervisor or boss needs and be sort of that indispensable person. And of course, that means coming in early and leaving late and, you know, being an employee that can do things that they, you don't need to ask them to do based on the fact that you've asked them to do something before. Oh, they know you like it in a certain way um, because, you know, managers, supervisors are busy and the time that it takes to stop and re-explain something to somebody um, is valuable time. And so I think as young people try to stand out in the workplace, those that I've always found that can anticipate um, what their supervisor is looking for and kind of produce that quality without being asked about it all the time is a real, um, it's an interesting way to, to think about it and to, you know, focus on trying to be productive and, and do so in a way that doesn't need a ton of oversight. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> Betsy, thank you thank so you. much. Of course, for being it was here. my pleasure. Oh, it's a delight to have thank you. you. I really thank enjoyed you. it. Thank Betsy you. and I have known each other a long time. Yeah. And I, I learned some things about you, which is a lot of fun. To learn more about Betsy, we will include show notes. You can find those on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave us some feedback. We love hearing from you. And most importantly, thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.